So if you don't know, we are traveling through the book of 1 John. John, brilliant epistle, short, five chapter. And he writes it because he has an agenda. It's a real simple agenda. It's so that you can know about your faith, whether you're saved, whether you're not, you're supposed to know that. He writes, we saw last week, so that we don't sin, because sin hurts. He writes, he writes that we could have the ability to spot lies and deception, because they're all around us today. So it's an equipping, brilliant epistle, right? And we're into it, into chapter two. We got a lot to do today, so we're gonna jump right in because John now gets to his big thing. He's called the apostle of love, and finally he gets to his thing, which is love, and he hammers it beautifully. So we're gonna pick it up, 1 John chapter two, verse seven. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know what he is doing because darkness has blinded his eyes. So the first thing John says in this little section is this. He says, love, it's nothing new. But as you read it, it's a little bit confusing, right? I've got an old commandment, but it's not an old commandment, it's a new commandment. So what's happening here? What's John trying to get across to us? I think he's trying to do this because of the environment he lived in. And we know it today. Can religion be weaponized, right? You look at Islam at times, where Iran chants death to America. Now, that's not all Muslims, no doubt about it, but it can be weaponized and used as a vehicle for hate. But we always have to turn that mirror back on us. Can Christianity be weaponized? Oh, fully. Some of the worst comments that I have ever received from social media or in letters or in emails have come from people who believe that they are Christians. And they're the worst. They're the hardest. They're the rudest. They're horrible because our faith can be weaponized and it can be used to hurt people, to hate people, right? Because very often religion, here's what it does. It divides us into us, the good guys versus them, the bad guys. And that's what religion can do. The best analogy I heard of this is that of a corral, a horse corral, right? You have a horse corral and what it does, it has these gates and these walls and these you know, boards and everything that keep the horses in. 
and that each horse has been branded to show they belong inside the corral, right? There might be horses that are inside the corral that would actually like to get out, but they can't. And there might be horses on the outside of the corral that would like to get in, but they can't get in because of the barriers that are, that's put in front of them. I think a lot of times that's religion, like that religion builds its walls and builds its system that says, here are the good people that are inside, right? Could you tell an Amish person right away? Why? Because they have branded themselves in such a way that you can identify very quickly, oh, you are Amish. There's really clear, clear guidelines about what an Amish person is. The vehicles they drive, the way that they speak, the dress that they have, right? So there's real clear guidelines. Oh, they're inside. They're part of the in crew. That's a corral. And in Jesus' day, there was a group of people called the Pharisees. And they'd built really strict guidelines about who's in and who's out. They'd done a really good job. You could tell a Pharisee because they dressed a certain way. They called them bumble and stumble Pharisees, because they were so worried about looking at a woman in the wrong way, they wouldn't even look up. They'd just stare and they'd bump into things all the time. Like you could tell, oh, that guy is a Pharisee, right? So there's this corral mentality. We do these things, we don't do those things, sharp distinctions between us, the good people that are on the inside and those bad people out there, us versus them, weaponized Christianity, weaponized faith. Well, Jesus comes. And Jesus said, yeah, I'm not in your corral. In fact, I don't even want people from your corral. I want the tax collectors and I want the prostitutes and I want the drunkards. That's who I want. Read Matthew 21. And the people inside were like, what? We worked hard to get our status. We worked hard to get inside. You can't just give this thing away. And they got very angry because Jesus said religion isn't a horse corral with rules that keep you on the inside. Christianity is not this way that you dress or a brand that you take. It's closer to this. Christianity is a watering hole in the Sahara that draws all kinds, that know without that water, we will die. It's not about how I look and who I am. It's I have to drink that water. And I have a picture at home, I've kept it. It's a picture of a, just a desert where there's one watering hole left and there is a lion drinking water and maybe 30 feet away is a zebra drinking water. Now, why would these natural enemies, why would they come to the same spot? Because you had to, because it was life. And so it's not about us versus them, it's about him. And without his living water, we're going to perish. And it doesn't matter who's next to me because it's about him and that it's not about the rules or the brain that you have, it's my trajectory. Am I getting closer to the watering hole or am I getting further away from it? It's my trajectory, not my rules and my where I'm at. No way, is, is I drawing closer or not, right? That, that's what it's about. And so Jesus, Jesus gives this, it's Matthew 23. And it's Jesus goes off on the Pharisees. There is no other section in scripture where Jesus talks so harshly about a group of people because they've weaponized faith. And this is how he ends that. He goes, here's what you have done. It's verse 37 of Matthew 23. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to it. 
You have weaponized faith so much now that the very messengers that I've been sending to you for centuries, you've been killing them because they don't agree with your corral. So you kill them. It had been so weaponized. So that's why John is like, this is new, but it's not new, right? Something's happened to this faith that God wanted to give to the Israelites where it had been weaponized and turned into killing prophets and those sent to them. But was that God's intention? No, if you read the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. Leviticus, and love your neighbor like yourself. What happened to those commands? They got lost in the rules and the building of fences and the corrals and the dress code, right? So Jesus says, uh-uh, no way. So what John is arguing is this, Jesus turned the light on for us. And now there's no excuse to hate people. You don't have it anymore. You can't have the us versus them mentality that we're good and they're bad. No, you're all bad. Jesus is good and he has invited you to drink of living waters. That's the story of the gospel, that it takes away the weaponizing of the faith, right? That you and I, can't do that anymore because it darkens our heart and we stumble and we demonize people and we take away their image bearing, that they're not even human anymore. We make them something that, there are, that they are not. Even though the Bible says every person that's ever been born is born as an image bearer of God. And we're not allowed to do that anymore. You can't do that. That we're supposed to love. How's that work out? Let me give you one illustration I heard. I talk to more men than I do to women, just the nature of the job. And I will from time to time talk with a man who tells me this, Matt, I'm not in love with my wife anymore. So here's what I do. I ask him two questions. Number one, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yeah, okay. Number two, do you believe that this book is God's word given to us to instruct us? In our faith, yes. Okay, good, let's go then. Because here's what this word says to you. Ephesians 5, 26. Husbands, love your wife. So go home and love your wife. But Matt, I'm just not in love. It doesn't say be in love with your wife, does it? What does it say? Husbands, love your wife. Well, Matt, you know what? I mean, uh, you know, I just don't feel like, like I can love her. Okay, fine. Right? The Bible says this. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. Your wife is your closest neighbor. Go home and love your wife, right? Well, actually, Matt, uh, she moved out. Okay, fine. The Bible says this. How shall all men know that you are my disciple? By your love one for another. Love her as a sister in Christ then. Oh, Matt, I'm not sure if she's saved. Okay, fine. <laughs> the Bible says, love your enemy. Go home and love your wife. Do you see that? Jesus did not give us an excuse. It just pins you in. It's not a new command, it's always, but there's a newness to it. You have no excuse. You cannot divide things into us versus them, right? You can't do that. But Matt, you know, I just don't think God would want me to be unhappy. Oh, so Jesus, God in the flesh, is betrayed 
beaten, whipped and scourged, crown of thorns smashed into his head, nails pierced his body, soared through his side, and God doesn't want you to be unhappy? Oh, come now. Come now, are you kidding me? Go home and love your wife. All right, not the funny little teenage, I love him. No, it's I am choosing that this is what God commands of me and he will enable me to do it. That's what it is. That he has filled me with his Holy Spirit. And if this is what God is asking me to do, narrowing me down, not giving me any excuse, he will also empower me to do it. And feelings will follow my obedience. That's what's being said. Not new, it's what God has always wanted, but there's a newness to it now. Because you and I now have the spirit of God inside of us that will enable us to do it. That his love flows through us. There's a saying, hurt people hurt people. I say loved people can love people. You've been loved supremely. His spirit is inside of you. Go love people. That's the newness of this command. So I always ask when I read stuff like that, knowing the tendencies of my heart, being in church since I was a little kid, what's going to prevent us from becoming the kind of people or the church that gets into us good people, them bad people? Because it happens subtly and it happens all the time. What's going to prevent us from moving in that direction? I think fundamentally, it's the culture that's built into a church. And there's a lot of different cultures. I'm gonna mention two of them because I think they're the giant two that stand on top of every church. And you're gonna fall somewhere into like the spectrum of these two, right? So there is a country club mentality in church where church exists for the members. We wanna be entertained. We wanna be taken care of. We want our needs met. Come here, get everything that you need, right? It's a country club. But then there is also... This mentality over here, I call it the emergency room culture of a church. Where it's not about you, it's about sick people and lost people and dying people that need help. So which one would tend to be easily weaponized and which one would not? Which one would divide into us, the good people, and them, the bad people, right? I think the country club would. And you can test, I think, really quickly in my own heart, I can test our culture, like, what, 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 where do we fall? Right, number one, like this, dress code. Which one has a dress code? A country club or an emergency room? The country club, right? White shirt, collar, uh, shorts that do not show any of the upper thigh of a man. And that's it, okay, good, I can go golf then. Emergency rooms, they have a dress code? No way, in fact, they take away your clothes and they put you in that ridiculous gown that does not have enough material to cover your backside. So you're always like worried about, hey, oh, excuse me, sorry, sorry. Whoa, hey, you're over there. Okay, right? So when we start getting judgmental about what people are wearing, oh no, I am moving into this country club kind of things that begins to divide us versus them in an unhealthy way, right? N number two test is truth. You think... Truth reigns in country clubs? Or do you think people might brag a bit and pose a bit, rent a Corvette and drive there, even though they drive a Chevette, right? Which one? 
Hmm. How about an emergency room? Can you be truthful in an emergency room? Or are you posing and bragging? Like, ah, I got hit by a semi, but you should see that semi, man. And I don't really need your help, doc. If you could hand me my arm, I'll get out of your hair and go home. No, you can be really honest in an emergency room. This is what happened to me, help me, right? You can be truthful. Or you place that truth reigns, that people feel like they can come here and it's okay to not be okay. We just don't want you to see it that way. We want to see you healed and made better, right? How about dealing with diseased people? You think country clubs are good at dealing with diseased people? No. How about us, emergency rooms? How do we do? Are we okay with diseased, broken people? Or do they annoy us? Are we kind of annoyed by people's brokenness and people, you know, I don't know. No, wait, in an emergency room, guess what? Diseased people are the number one thing. It's not, well, you know, I know he just got hit by a semi, but I'm on my lunch break right now. I'll be back in an hour. There's not a doctor here. Oh, just give him a Dr. Pepper. Same thing. No, you just, oh, okay, right? How about being busy? Do you think country clubs are a place where there's a lot of like action and busyness? Now you're sitting around, sipping a tea, bragging about how great you are. How about emergency rooms? Man, emergency rooms are happening. They are busy. I think what can happen in church is this. We can become more concerned about what we know which is important, we'll talk about that in a second, than what we do. So in country clubbish churches, it's about, hey, what's the latest book you read or what's the latest knowledge you had? And I love books and I love knowledge. I went to seminary. I'm not down on that. But if it's all we talk about, knowledge, but there's no like doing, I think something's, something's gone wrong, right? And it's much harder to do than to know. In emergency rooms, if somebody comes up to you in emergency room church, if you ask somebody, how are you doing? And they reply, oh, terrible. My marriage is in shambles. My daughter is sleeping with her boyfriend. My wife is depressed. I'm abusing prescription drugs. You can't just say, well, God bless you. I hope to see you next week. You're gonna have to get involved, right? You're gonna be inconvenienced It's not, oh, I got my lunch break right now. It's, oh, all hands on deck. How can I help you? How can I walk with you? How can I assist you in this? Not aquarium ministry where you're just able to put them back when things are tough. No, all right. Your pain inconveniences me and causes me to respond. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what's supposed to happen. And I wanna make sure that we are a culture that's a good emergency room for our great high priest. That the great physician says, Edgewater is a place where I can work. Edgewater is a place that understands this stuff. They have a holy, fierce love for people that's more concerned with how they're doing than their opinion of them, right? That listen, you got cancer and this is gonna hurt and it's gonna help you in the future, but right now you're gonna hate me and that's okay because this is gonna help you in the future. That's an emergency room. My prayer has been for many years, may we be a really good emergency room where people know, there's no dress code there. You can be truthful there. If you tell them your problems, they're not gonna just ignore you. They're gonna say, well, what can we do to help you? How can we walk this out? How can we help you get well again? That's what we're gonna pray for, right? So it's a new command. But it's not a new command. It's what God has always wanted. But here's the newness of it. 
you can do it. You can do it. Well, how? How do we do it? Well, John is brilliant here. He gives now three ways that you can grow, three almost stages of love for the Christian. And they're brilliant, right? Each one helps us say, okay, how's my love quotient? How am I doing? And they're amazing. So check this out. Verse 12. I'm writing to you little children. Because your sins are forgiven. Why are your sins forgiven? Because you confess them just right? Because you're good enough and smart enough and gosh darn it, people like you? Why are your sins forgiven? For his name's sake, you don't come into the equation. Do you understand that? Do you understand how good that is? Listen, in the Old Testament, when you sinned, you would take a lamb and you would go to the high priest and what would happen when you said, hey man, I blew it. Would you get interviewed? Well, what did you do wrong? Well, how did you do it? Did you reconcile? Did you do this? Would that happen? No, what would happen? They would look at the lamb and if the lamb was spotless, your sacrifice was accepted. You did not come into the equation. You didn't matter. The lamb mattered. Why are you forgiven? Because the sinless spotless lamb of God took away your sins. It's his namesake, period. You can bank on that. Do you understand how huge that is? You don't come in the equation. You don't matter. You're forgiven because of his namesake. Brilliant. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you children because you know the Father. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So love, here's what to do. It's not new. Love, here's what to do. And this is brilliant. Three kind of groups. I think we're gonna all fall into one of these three categories. First, there's children. And this is what John says about the children. He says that you are forgiven and that you know the Father. So he begins, like John always does, God-centered. You're forgiven for his name's sake and you know the Father. Well, my question then is, how does forgiveness help me to not weaponize my faith? How does forgiveness help me to love better? Let me try to give you a couple ways. God, you probably already know this, is omniscient, which means he's got all the facts. He can't learn something. Omni, all, science, he's got it all. So he's got all the facts. So what this means is this. God knows every sin, sin that I have forgiven in my past, but God also knows all the sins I'm going to commit. That I'm not, God isn't learning something new about me. God's not surprised by my sin, okay? So God knows them all. So here's what this could mean. Um, I'll try to use a parenting example. If you raised kids, I've had, you know, I have five kids, three daughters, two sons, and there are hard stages raising kids. Like if you remember the infancy stage, your child would no doubt have what we would call a blowout. Remember that? 
where you could not believe something so small could create so much poop. You're just like, what in the world? It's like we ran into a manure truck. How did this happen, right? Not a fun experience, no one likes it, right? So you gotta clean that mess up and you gotta deal, you know, it's just a major, major hassle. But imagine somehow you had omniscience and you knew that they're only gonna have 10 more blowouts. That's it. So if your child has a blowout, yeah, it's not fun. Yeah, it's yuck. But wouldn't there be a little bit of joy? Because you would know only nine more and we're done with this. (laughs) Praise God, right? There's joy in it. I think when you get to know the father, that's what happens. The father, yeah, he helps us in our blowouts cleanses us from our blowouts. And I think the father has a bit of joy because he knows this. Okay, Matt, only 637 more blowouts and then we're done. All right, right? Read Isaiah 30, verse 18, that God joys in showing mercy to us, that he glories in it, that he wants to do that for us. Man, when you understand you're forgiven, when you know the heart of the father, something happens to you. Jesus says this, he that has forgiven much loves much. Jesus ties together our forgiveness and our capacity to love. Now, why is that? Here's why. When I start to hate my brother, when I start to get dark like that, I've forgotten that I was forgiven the same sin. And if I would be willing in those moments where I start feeling this anger and this hatred toward that person, if I would take a moment back and say, did I do the same thing? Did I blow it that way? Guess what I'd find out? Yeah, I did. And I've been forgiven. Wow. And what that does is it dissolves that seed of bitterness that can grow and darken you and corrupt you or you demonize them and they become less than human and you're able to hate on them because you've done that to them. It dissolves it. I was forgiven of the same exact thing. Oh, help me, help me. That you and I need to be continually pulling up to the forgiveness station and remembering all the stupid things that we've done in our past because then it enables us to love people love people. And in my case, that's super easy to do, to remember stupid things I've done. And what I find is I stop demonizing and hating people. I've done the same thing. That's why. So first stage here is, hey, you've been forgiven. But here's the thing with kids, if you've had them. Kids are emotionally unstable, aren't they? (laughs) Massively. So your kid can be crying and sobbing like it's the end of the world. And you can go up to them and be like, hey, do you want some ice cream? And they're like, yes. Right? They can snap out of it just like that. Because they just have this roller coaster of emotions, right? They also kind of have this, like, I think, this capacity to believe that they already know everything. Don't they? They want to argue with you about stuff. You're just like, you are two years old. You know five words. Stop arguing with me, right? I have a saying at home. It says, I'm not young enough to know everything. All right? But when you're young, you just think you're a know-it-all. And then, then what you kind of see with new Christians is this. I call it the, the hokey pokey. Like one minute they're hot and they're in. They're all in. And the next minute they're like, oh, I'm not out. Right? There's this kind of in and outness. So we're supposed to grow and develop. 
That's, yeah, it's great to know you're forgiven. It's great to know the heart of the Father towards you, but you're also supposed to say, well, I should build on this. And that's this next stage. It's the adult. So John puts it as young men, I'll just say. It's your adult stage. And the three things the adults do is this. The word abides in them. They're strong and they overcome. They know God's word. God's word makes them strong. And because they are strong, they overcome the evil one. Super simple. So number one, it's the word. I've been doing this since 1991. I was raised in the church, but I really dedicated my life to Jesus in 91. And I've had the ups and downs and the hokey pokey and the instability and all that stuff, right? Here's what I know. In that time, I have never seen a believer grow without God's word. I have not seen it yet because God's word is the calories for faith, hope, and love. And too many people are starved. So, he, so John says, the word of God, and I love this, it abides in us. So sometimes we think, well, I just need to memorize scripture. That's not it. As important as that is. The Pharisees knew scripture. They would have memorized the first five books of the Bible. Have you ever read the first five books of the Bible? Can you imagine memorizing them? There are lists and lists of names. Like, it's just unbelievable. So these guys, they absolutely had memorized God's word, but guess what? God's word had never changed them or transformed them. So, what's, what's it? so when John uses this word abide, it's a different kind of word. It's God's word goes into you and it's incarnational. It actually begins to transform you and change you, right? Here's the best example I have. Many years ago, uh, my youngest daughter, Gabrielle, was having a birthday party. And at this birthday party, my wife and I, we, had a, we were gonna go kind of big on this one. So we had a lot of stuff to do. We we're gonna set up a water slide. We we're gonna do all these things, right? So I'm at work. Uh, my wife is at home doing decoration and all that kind of stuff. And I get a call from her. I can't take it because I was in a meeting. But after the meeting, I pick it up and she leaves me a voicemail. And she said this, honey, I have to go pick up Gabrielle. I did not have time to set up the water slide, and I'll be home in a couple of hours. That was it. Now, husbands, can you read between the lines? What did my wife just do? She gave me a duty and a deadline. <laughs> Set up the slide before I get home, right? Now, before I got married, I would have just thought, well, that's great information, thank you, and I would have memorized it and written it down, that'd been awesome. After marriage, I realized, oh, I'll get home, set up the thing, do it quickly before your wife gets home. Here's what cracked me up. When I'm setting it up, my wife calls me. I answer this time. She goes, hey, did you set up the water slide? I said, you never told me to set up the water slide. She goes, oh, I thought you'd figure it out. I did. That's the word abiding in you, right? The word just begins to shape you. You can kind of just, oh, I know how to live now. I know what I'm supposed to do because it's shaped me. I have a word-shaped life now. That the word has transformed me. It's become incarnational. It abides in me. And what I do now is birthed out of a life shaped by God's word. And you grow strong. Not hokey pokey. Not one moment in, one moment out. There's just a strength to you. How you live and what you do. And then lastly... Lastly, 
you overcome. You start to overcome. So here's the thing with kids. Kids are needy, aren't they? Parents, have you ever checked your kids in the nursery and they don't want to let go of you? They're holding on to you like, they're needy. They just need this constant affirmation. The adult stage, you don't need that anymore. You're strong and you start to overcome sin. Galatians chapter five, verses 16 and 17. The spirit, God's spirit inside of us, makes war against our flesh. There becomes this way that God's spirit begins to work in us where you're just like, yeah, I don't wanna do that anymore. Yeah, that's not good. It's Romans chapter six. You are crucified with Christ. You've been resurrected into the newness of life. So don't yield your members to unrighteousness. Yield them to righteousness. It just happens naturally. You stop wanting to do the garbage and you start wanting to overcome the evil one in your life. It's Romans chapter eight. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty. They're spiritual to the tearing down of strongholds. You just begin to overcome stuff, overcome sin. It's like you're alive. You're a live fish. Live fish swim upstream. They swim against culture. They swim against stuff that's no good. Dead fish, relaxed fish, float on the surface and go downhill. I want to be a live fish. I want to overcome darkness in myself and the world around me. That's this next stage, and it's brilliant, and it's beautiful. If you're an older believer, you know this. It doesn't get easier, but it gets better. You just get more equipped. You've got more tools. Your life just changes. Not easier, but better and better and better. It's Proverbs 4, verse 18. The path of the righteous grow brighter and brighter until that day. It's better because the light's been turned on. And you get to this final stage. It's fathers. It's the Greek word pater, which can be translated parent or father. So I just use the word parents. Parents, here's what he says. Fathers, you've known him who is from the beginning. John says it twice. It's that important. This final kind of stage, this parenting stage, two things. First of all, you parent people, right? Parents parent people. How do you become a parent? I'm not gonna explain the process, but you need kids, right? You need someone that you are helping out. That's what you do. So here's what parents do. They want to see those that are coming into the ER, the broken, the sick, the wounded, and the hurt become healthy. They wanna see them become strong, the word abide in them, and for them to overcome the evil one. That's what they want to see. And so parents now, it's not so much about them, that God's will for their life, what God's doing in their life, it's the great commission. I wanna make disciples. I wanna see God work through you. I'm not a container for God. I'm a conduit for his love and his kindness and his goodness. Do we have something going on? A robbery in the warehouse below. Well, Jesus. Isn't that right? <laughs> Good answer. Jesus, we pray for our law enforcement right now who have made a decision to protect us, and we are grateful for that. We pray that you would protect them. We pray for this business owner down there, Lord. We pray that he would be protected through this. 
We pray for the robber. We pray that his heart or her heart or their hearts would be being changed. That as Ephesians chapter four says, they would stop stealing, give their heart to you, that they would work hard and become givers, that they would be so transformed by your power and your love that they are changed. We pray for this campus. We pray for your protection upon this campus, even right now. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, parents, they parent the sick and the broken and those kind of people. That's our goal. We want to see people that are broken and hurting themselves and hurting others transformed and changed. That's our goal. Can we do anything for you guys? Are you good? No problem. Yep. Lastly, it says that parents know him who is from the beginning. So when, when, when we're in the childish stage, here's what happens, and I've been there. You kind of have these crises of faith, right? Something bad happens, and you feel like the sky is falling. Marriage is hard, raising kids is hard, you're depressed, you lose your job, whatever, and there's this crisis, and it's like we start treating Jesus like I just called a super Walmart. We avoid him until we have a really desperate need, and then we go shopping. Jesus, help me with my depression. I need a carton of depression stuff. Jesus, help me with my marriage. I need a carton. No, I need a case. No, I need a pallet. No, I need a truckload of marriage help, right? Jesus, I'm struggling as a parent. I need, right? So we treat Jesus like a super Walmart. They can just kind of go shop. We're not really after him. What are we after? His gifts. It's not that we know him from the beginning. And there's a stage to that. Jesus can do all those things. And Jesus does do all those things. But there becomes a maturity in the patter Christian where it's not about his gifts anymore. It's Romans 12, one. Therefore, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service. It's not about what Jesus gives to me. It's, I wanna give back to him. I wanna give my life wholly and completely to him because he is worth it. That the pattern believer knows him and has a routine in his life of devotions and study, the word abiding, that there's not these wild swings anymore. Sin has been overcome and there's this brilliance to it, right? A consistency to their faith. It's we found Psalm 63, six, that your love is better than life. Whatever I've been searching, whatever I think life is out there, he's better. He's better than that, right? It's not the gifts anymore. We want him. We're not looking for miracles or signs, but he can do those things, no problem if he wants to. It's we want him. That's why it says twice you've known him who's from the beginning. It's Jesus is better than life. I want him. And there's such power. Things just dissolve them. So it's like this. I'll try to explain it like this. Um, growing up, we had one dessert. That was it. My mom loved ice cream. So she would buy at Albertsons, you could buy four half gallons of Lucerne ice cream. Remember Lucerne ice cream? Is there still Lucerne ice cream? Probably not. Is there? Yeah. I should get some. So, although I don't eat ice cream anymore. And that's part of the story. So, uh, we would, she would buy, the, for five bucks, you could buy four 
half gallons of Lucerne ice cream. So we always had ice cream. She had to lock it up eventually because we'd eat too much of it. But every evening, it was a bowl of ice cream. So you can ask my kids, like, when they were younger, every evening, it was a bowl, not of Lucerne ice cream. I chose Breyer's Natural Vanilla. Here's why. You read the ingredients. There are three ingredients in Breyer's Natural Vanilla. Milk, sugar, and vanilla. I'm like, that's health food, man. Eat as much as you want, right? So there finally came a point in my life, you know, there's a habit that goes back like decades. There finally came a point where I'm like, I gotta stop this. I'm just eating too much ice cream. Well, how do you do that, right? Here's what I figured out. If I fill up on something good, I forget all about the bad stuff. Like if I'm already full and I'm satisfied, I don't have an appetite for the bad stuff, right? So if I fill up on something good, the, the, the bad just goes away. So I knew this, like I lost all appetite for ice cream if I just filled up on a couple chocolate bars. It's gone. <laughs> the good, right? That's the pattern believer. His love is better than life. And what happens is all the crises and all the sin stuff, it just, it's gone. Because I found something so much better. I'm full now. I'm full. Right? So whenever I study through a message like this, I always take some time, and this is what I ask myself. Am I hating on somebody right now? Because it's going to cause me to stumble, the Bible says. It's going to pollute me. It's going to ruin me. Am I hating somebody right now? It causes me to say, where am I at? Am I just in the forgiveness stage and kind of unstable? Well, that's fine. But I want to grow. I want the word to abide in me. I want to be strong. I want to overcome evil in my life and in the world. Or I'm at the parent stage. If I am, who am I discipling? Who am I parenting right now? Right? So it's just, just this way of, Lord, where am I at? And no matter where you're at on that spectrum, the Bible says this. The key is coming to him. That where you're weak, he will be strong. That's why every Sunday we come to the Lord's table. It's an acknowledgement that without you, we can do nothing. And we continually come back to you, Jesus I'm hating somebody right now and I can feel it eating me up and I can't stop the tape and it keeps going on in my head and it's polluting me and I can't sleep and I wanna stop it. So I'm confessing that to you today and I'll confess it to you every time it comes up so that you'll cleanse me from this unrighteousness. Jesus, my faith has been kind of fragile right now. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm just crisis after crisis and maybe it's because I'm looking at the gifts you give instead of you supremely. Forgive me of that. Jesus, I want to disciple somebody. Show me how to do that. That's what we do. That's why we take communion. Turning to the one, turning to the only one that can shape our hearts into the kind of hearts that actually want this because he is the watering hole. So Jesus today, I pray for those here today, those of us who have hatred in our heart because someone has hurt us. And hatred is a boomerang. It always comes back and hits us. 
It robs us, it destroys us. So we wanna release that to you today. Help us go back to the forgiveness station and to be reminded how we have hurt people and you've forgiven us. I pray for those that are having crises of faith. You can repair marriages. You can heal cancer. You can change everything. But often it's so that we get more of you. So that we realize that your love is better than life. May we allow you to direct us that way, I pray. So may we eat of strength. May we eat of the ability to go out and love people with a holy, fierce love today. Doing what is best for them. Not what's convenient or comfortable. So may you fill us up with your love. Let's eat together. We hold the cup. The cup of an unbelievable forgiveness that you know, you know the dark, deep nastiness of my soul. People know my actions, you know my bad attitudes. And yet you love me. And you've promised that love will never be taken away. That we are in your hand and no one can snatch us out. And we're in the Father's hand and no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. That nothing can separate us from your love. How profound is that? How good is that? May we drink of that. May we drink of our future that you said you would not drink this cup again until the new kingdom. There's a kingdom coming where wrongs will be righted, where shalom will reign, where goodness and love and kindness and peace will be the only thing we talk about. Oh, happy day that will be. May we drink hope, hope in the coming kingdom. Hope that you can bring that kingdom to bear on us today. Let's drink together. Amen. So we have a simple conclusion to our service. We'll sing a song. And then up here, we'll have people that would love to pray for you if you need prayer for anything. And then we do baptisms out here. Every Sunday we do baptisms, giving you the opportunity, Romans 6, to be buried and resurrected to newness of life. If you're doing well, great. Stand and declare your wellness to God. God bless you guys.